1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, standing in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we give you a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In recent years, the search for life beyond Earth has mostly focused on Mars. There are six spacecraft around the Red Planet. Venus has just one. But the striking discovery of phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus suggests that it might be the likelier candidate and pop music from south korea has conquered the world it's also been tainted with sexual abuse scandals but the industry's most successful pop group is getting in touch with its sensitive side and shedding k-pop's misogynistic image but first Protests have been raging in Belarus for five consecutive weeks, following last month's fraudulent presidential election.
0: Since the highly controversial vote, which Lukashenko denies rigging, thousands have been arrested, and almost all opposition leaders have been either jailed, deported or forced into exile.
1: The country's dictator, Alexander Lukashenko, has unleashed a brutal crackdown on his people, one that has failed to halt the demonstrations. On Sunday, more than 100,000 Belarusians took to the streets of Minsk in what was one of the biggest protests yet, calling for Mr Lukashenko to step down. The next day, he flew to Sochi for lengthy talks with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. That meeting was seen as vital for Mr Lukashenko's political survival. A bored-looking Mr Putin tapped his hands on his chair before tossing the Belarusian president a one and a half billion dollar lifeline. But whether that'll be enough to keep Mr Lukashenko in power is another matter.
2: We're now one month since the election, which it seems pretty clear wasn't a fair election in any way. Christopher Lockwood is our Europe editor. And the people of Belarus have continued to demonstrate. And this last Sunday, we had, I think, the largest that we've seen yet. But Mr Lukashenko is showing no sign of backing down either. He's successfully managed to expel most of the leaders of the opposition. And he has flown to Russia to contact Vladimir Putin there, hoping for support from him, both in the forms of money, but also possibly in forms of military or security assistance, if that proves necessary for him. How did that meeting go? Well it didn't look very good. The video of the meeting shows an incredibly bored and irritable looking Mr Putin not even looking at Lukashenko who's leaning over towards him to engage him in conversation and really getting the equivalent of the cold shoulder and these are images that were then broadcast deliberately obviously to show that Lukashenko's is really not in favour with Vladimir Putin.
1: What does the situation look like from Mr Putin's point of view in Moscow?
2: The problem for Mr. Putin is that Lukashenko has given him a series of alternatives and all of them are terrible. One of them is to do nothing and risk instability on his flank and this continuing uprising against a communist era style leader, which paints all kinds of uncomfortable parallels to what's going on in Russia and is very difficult for Mr. Putin, especially if it succeeds in the end, of course. The alternative is to help Mr Lukashenko suppress the uprising or um, stand by while it happens and not criticise it. All of those options are terrible as well. Vladimir Putin, of course, has a very poor relationship with the West, but the last thing he wants is for it to get very dramatically worse, as it would if he intervened in a sort of hungry 1956 sort of a way in another neighbouring country.
1: Do you think Russian support's enough to let Mr Lukashenko cling on?
2: I don't think so. They've given him a credit line, supposedly, of $1.5 billion. Who knows whether that money will ever actually appear and what strings will be attached to it. And there is large-scale strike action going on across much of the country.
1: If Lukashenko does hang on, he's going to be in hock to the Kremlin for quite a long time, isn't he?
2: Yes, absolutely. And of course, this is part of, of the Putin game plan. What they want to do is to draw Belarus much more closely into the Russian orbit. Now, already, the two countries are linked in something that they call the union state, but it's basically a form of economic cooperation. It is believed, and again, we don't know this for sure, but it is believed that Mr. Putin wants to construct something much closer and tighter, for instance, a shared central bank, direct Russian control of various strategic industries, possibly bits of defence. And that would be a pretty shocking thing for Mr. Lukashenko to do at a time when he has zero legitimate, after an election that you can't regard as having been either valid or binding.
1: That's Russia. What about the West? How are Western countries responding to all of this?
2: Well, frankly, the Western response has been absolutely pathetic, with the exception of a couple of countries that know very well what Putin is like, particularly Poland and Lithuania. The rest of the EU has just been dithering. Essentially, we are told that they're working on a package of sanctions, which will be in the form of directly targeting Mr. Lukashenko and his immediate henchmen and a list of perhaps two or three dozen people from the security services who've been involved in the repression. But you know this hasn't happened yet. There is a division of views inside Europe on this. Some countries, and France is one of the worst here, are too much keen on preserving a good relationship with Russia to stand up to something that's going on in Belarus very much with Vladimir Putin's
1: approval, and shame on them. If we accept that Belarus is a sort of template for the tactics that Mr Putin has used in Russia, is he right to worry about what these protests in Belarus mean for him at home? Is he weakening? He's
2: absolutely right to worry about it. Uh, The situations are... Rather similar. You have two countries that have long standing leaders and not much in the way of opposition. In Russia, the nearest thing to a true opposition leader is Alexei Navalny. He was poisoned by persons unknown and uh, is now out of the country in a hospital in Germany. Almost certainly this was done with the knowledge or perhaps even the direct command of the Kremlin. But there isn't a proper focus for opposition to Mr Putin in Russia, just as it's been difficult to get the opposition to focus around any single person in Belarus. That means that Mr Putin can hope to hang on, I think. He is pretty unpopular. Lots of opinion polls show that his approval ratings are down much lower than they've ever been before. But that said, people don't really see an alternative to Mr Putin, so they don't come out to support one.
1: Turning back to Belarus, What's the situation like on the ground for the protesters and for the opposition? Do they have any prospect of getting what they wanted at the beginning of this?
2: It doesn't look like it to me, but I I could be wrong about this. These situations can turn on a sixpence sometimes. At the moment, they've reached a sort of modus vivendi. The police are not being quite so brutally repressive as they first were, partly because the protesters have been very clever and basically are using women as the front line of protest. And for all that Mr. Lukashenko's goons are happy to beat up protesters, they seem not quite so keen on beating up women. So this sort of standoff has developed a bit where, there's neither totally brutal repression nor very successful demonstrations so they don't try and storm the President's Palace or Parliament or anything like that.
1: How do you see this playing out then?
2: I think this stalemate could go on for, for really quite a long time. We saw that happen in the protests that brought down the Soviet Union in 1990. If it does come to an end, it may very well be because the Russians say to Mr. Lukashenko, look, you know, the jig is up, we can't support you anymore. You're going to go off into comfortable exile in Moscow, and we will put someone else in. You know, the problem is, who will that person be? They need to find someone who would be acceptable to the protesters and acceptable to Russia. I'm not entirely sure that's such a person exists. There is no clear single leader of the opposition, with the exception of Mrs Tikhanovskaya, who is in exile Lithuania. Might she come back? I suppose it's possible, but I think she's also anathema to the Russians. So I don't think she would be an acceptable candidate for them. They'll have to try and find someone else, I suspect. So I don't think this one will end any time particularly
1: soon. Christopher, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you.
1: Venus, our nearest neighbour in the solar system, is not a hospitable place. The average temperature is nearly 500 degrees Celsius, and the atmosphere is made mostly of carbon dioxide. Clouds of sulfuric acid swirl above. But this week, a paper was published in the journal Nature Astronomy that could change our view of the planet, and indeed of the universe beyond. An international team of astronomers say they found traces of a gas in Venus's atmosphere which might point to the existence of microbial life. If the discovery is verified, it would be a generational breakthrough, proof that Earth is not the only place with living creatures. But that remains a big if, and the road to verification won't be a straightforward one. Because Venus is very inhospitable,
3: and also a really terrible place to actually try and do things with Earthly technology, people looking for life in the solar system have tended to look elsewhere since the 1960s. Oliver Morton is the briefings editor at The Economist. They have thought about icy moons in the outer solar system and of course returned again and again to that hardy perennial Mars. But this week's news makes it look as though they may have to give Venus a second chance.
1: Scientists have discovered signs of a gas in the atmosphere of Venus called phosphine, a possible indicator of life. Dr Emily Drabeck-Maunder from the Royal Observatory in Greenwich was on the team that found it.
4: On a rocky planet like the Earth, phosphine gas is pretty rare and it's mainly the result of life. It's what we call a biosignature. Now on Earth, phosphine is caused by human activity through things like industry, for example, or it's also caused by microorganisms or microbes. So finding a gas like this on Venus and in Venus's atmosphere is incredibly exciting because it's an indicator of life on the Earth.
1: The team found the phosphine by using two telescopes on Earth, one in Hawaii and the other in Chile.
4: The way we detected phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus is by using telescopes. That gave us the first look uh, at phosphine gas. And what we're seeing is a certain amount of sunlight will be reflecting off the clouds that surround Venus. But phosphine gas will absorb a little bit of that light, and that is the signature that we can really see
1: but the scientists are still trying to figure out where the phosphine is coming from.
4: Our study isn't conclusive for how phosphine gas is produced in the atmosphere of Venus. Now, so far, our team can't explain the amount of phosphine gas in the clouds through our current understanding of the planet. And so what that means is that we tried to uh, figure out what was producing phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus. Uh, We tried to think of things like sunlight, Interacting with Venus's atmosphere. We tried to check if volcanoes could be producing this phosphine gas, or even if lightning on the planet could produce the phosphine gas. But nothing makes enough of this gas. So, what that means is that we have to start considering other explanations outside the box. So, phosphine could be produced through some sort of chemical or geological process that no one knows about on Venus, or there could be another explanation, a biological reason, or life could be producing the gas.
1: Oliver, we've just heard from Dr Drabek-Maunder that the study hasn't reached a conclusion as to how the phosphine gas is being produced, that is, if it's there. What kind of experiments are needed next?
3: This is a very good piece of work. It uses two different telescopes, um, but at the same time, it's very hard to pick up trace gases in another planet's atmosphere through the Earth's atmosphere. And um, the history of planetary astronomy is full of occasions where people think they've done this and then later have to retract. And it's not to say that they've in any way jumped the gun by publishing this data. But the most important thing, I suppose, is for other people to confirm, ideally using other techniques, that there really is phosphine there.
1: And as we think about how to do that, how good is our understanding of Venus? You've talked about the search for life in other places. How well do we know Venus? If by we you mean
3: scientists, not terribly well. They know its surface because they've mapped it by radar and the Soviet Union actually managed to land on it. Um, And we know something about the structure of the atmosphere. But the atmosphere is a very complicated place. And lots of strange chemistry goes on on the surfaces of droplets in the atmosphere. That happens in the uh, Earth's atmosphere as well. And that's where you really need to push on with the modelling in order to see if there's any way that something could be making phosphine without the um, help of any living creatures.
1: So there's going to be a lot of scientific energy devoted to understanding this chemistry and where the life is behind it. Is Venus now our main hope of making such a discovery in the solar system or are there other possibilities too? Venus isn't the only place where people are
3: looking for life in the solar system as well as Mars, which frankly now looks more like a place to look like fossils of past life than present life there are the various moons in the outer solar system, which seem to have, clearly in some cases, have oceans beneath their icy surfaces. And the one that people are particularly excited about there is Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn, uh, which not only has an ocean, but actually squirts parts of its ocean into space for passing space probes to go and sample, which is a really very kind thing for it to do. And then there's also um, Saturn's bigger moon, Titan, which is just remarkably rich in all sorts of chemicals that are interesting from a biological point of view, and also has um, ice and fluids underneath it. And there's a plan to send a flying space probe called Dragonfly to look all over the surface of Titan sometime in the next decade.
1: And to come back to Venus, if there is phosphine confirmed in the atmosphere there, And, of course, if no one can find a non-biological source for it, what does that do to the way that we think about life beyond the Earth? Well, um, if if there's really not a biological
3: source, it means we think there is life beyond the Earth, which is not something that people are very clear about at the moment. Yet the idea that there could be life beyond the Earth seems fairly obvious in that it would be very unlikely if the Earth was the only place that had ever had microbes. And one of the things that I find very exciting about the possibility of life on Venus is it might show that life is possible in really marginal environments that you wouldn't normally associate uh, with it, um, like clouds full of sulfuric acid. And that might indicate that life is really quite common in the universe. And in this case, I don't think that it being common in any way Devalues it. In some ways, it makes it more remarkable that microbes might cling on in almost any environment, regardless of where they actually originally come from.
1: Oliver, thank you very much.
3: Pleasure, Shashank.
1: K pop is a global phenomenon transcending the language and culture of its home in South Korea. Many of the genre's most popular groups have sold millions of records around the world. But last year, a scandal rocked the world of K-pop music. Several male K-pop stars and industry executives were accused of sexual abuse, prostitution, drug peddling and bribery.
5: The K-pop scandal last year, which is widely known as the Burning Sun scandal, just exploded all over the scene and expose the sort of underlying ugliness and misogyny at the heart of the K-pop
1: industry. Lena Shipper is the Economist sole bureau chief.
5: It caused a lot of soul-searching and debate in South Korea at the time, but the most successful K-pop act in the world at the moment, BTS, are completely separate from that vibe. and The image they're selling is very much different from that sort of seedy side of the industry.
1: So what was the fallout from the scandal in legal terms, in human terms?
5: The fallout is still going on. There's still a lot of legal cases going through the courts. A couple of the men who were involved in the scandal were convicted. Two people were convicted for raping women on separate occasions. But in terms of tangible change, there hasn't really been that much either in the industry, which sort of keeps going in much the same way as it always has, or in the way that society responded to such scandals. So the two men who were convicted have actually had their sentences reduced. They're appealing for further reductions. They may well get them because the Korean legal system has traditionally not been very hard on accusations to do with sexual abuse. And there hasn't really been any reckoning with the rampant misogyny beneath the veneer of sort of sanitized sexiness that the K-pop industry sells but there's hope from an unexpected place because the most popular k-pop actor at the moment is obviously bts and their image is very different from this sort of seedy downside of k-pop that was brought out by the scandal last year
1: maybe i shouldn't admit this but i've never heard of bts who are they and how are they changing things
5: so VTS are seven very beautiful, highly groomed, 20-something men. And they're not just the most successful K-pop group in the world. They're currently the biggest boy band on the planet. Compared with previous of male K-pop idols who've tended to be quite macho, they're selling something sort of close to the opposite of that. They, they present themselves as very frank and down-to-earth, sort of nice and friendly. They've had their run-ins with feminists, but when their fans got upset about misogynistic lyrics the person who wrote them apologized and said i'm really sorry i'm ignorant i'm going to read more books earlier this year when a large number of their fans um, mobilized um, to you know donate to the black lives matter movement and asked them why they weren't doing anything they promptly joined their fans in the effort
1: what do most k-pop fans make of this less macho turn in the music The record sales and sort of streams and
5: BTS's success kind of speaks for itself. That approach clearly resonates with fans, both in South Korea and beyond South Korea. They talk about things that people can relate to. You know, they talk about personal growth, mental health issues, things like bullying. I think BTS probably offer hope to a generation of fans ground down by the pressure to compete and conform according to traditional roles, particularly here in South Korea, which is a very um, conservative and um, competitive society. And young women in particular seem to be attracted to their softer, kind of emotionally
1: vulnerable brand of masculinity. Is this the beginning of a kinder, gentler, maybe even less controversial era for K-pop?
5: <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably slightly too early to say that. Korean feminists naturally are dubious because, you know, however much BTS claim to have learned about women's rights and however many books they say they've read, they're a long way from being you know, hardened comrades in the fight against the patriarchy. But... What their success has shown is that niceness is an eminently marketable quality, you know, that, and that may encourage other people in the industry to give it a try because it clearly sells.
1: Lena, thank you very much.
5: Thanks very much.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you enjoyed listening, please do rate us on Apple Podcasts and see you back here tomorrow.